0: Welcome to another episode of Reckoning and Repair, The Art That's Touched Philadelphia. I am Katle Hokano Shuru, a Philly-based South African poet, a scholar, and the one who has the absolute pleasure of speaking to Emily Karis Duncan. In this episode, I get to speak to a folk futurist who transforms rocks into color, a black crafter who transforms absence into ancestry, and a spacemaker who will someday build a ship out of here. In her own words,
1: Emily is. A textile artist, um, a spacemaker, a I call myself a folk futurist and a, and a color maker as well, natural dyer. and um, an educator. I call myself an educator, and a budding farmer. My work is informed a lot by history. When I really started pursuing art seriously, it was a lot of mining my own experience and trying to understand that and then putting that into a larger context of American society and how this country came to be and how it stands as it is now. Nowadays, actually, the things that are informing my work are still very much those things, but I'm also interested in just like the material and curious about matter and thinking about transforming trauma into joy. After having experienced doing that a number of times in my own life, what is that process? And then what is the traumatic residue that gets left? But also what are these new forms and new joys that are created? What's driving me these days is just expressions and understandings and morphing and the materiality of trauma and joy. I wanted to think about physical, like actual punctuated
0: acts of healing. Emily's work is undergirded by questions.
1: Questions like... What does suturing look like? What does stitching look like? What does healing look like?
0: Central to Emily's archival and photographic work, was an interrogation of the knowledge and trauma held by elements of the ocean after the transatlantic slave trade. In a conversation at the Center for Experimental Ethnography, CEE, Emily asked, What does salt know? As she stitches herself tighter to textiles through her current art practice and extracts some of the possibilities embodied by the materials she uses, I was compelled to ask her, What
1: do textiles and dyes know? I think they know it all. I think, like, the textiles just are kind of silent witnesses in our lives. That's something that that just constantly is undergirding. The work is, like, the idea of what do the materials know after the trauma, because I'm a big believer. And just, you know, knowing what I know of nature is that there is sort of a a kind of knowledge. It's not necessarily a conscious knowledge that, that we know of, but you know, even the most solid things are still vibrating and moving. When it comes to the work and the materials I choose, especially with the dye work, it starts there. Although the substrates that I choose, like whether it's gonna be cotton or silk or hemp or whatever, also will play into the work that I'm making. The colors and the material sources, that's to me like where it becomes really very interesting. Being able to tell the story of a space or a land from these natural materials and then turn them into color. It's really exciting. For instance, it's not a piece that I really exhibit all that much, but I made a quilt for my husband based on, or out of the flowers that we had at our engagement party. So all the um, flowers that I, decided to use, I made sure that they were, I could pull color from them. What an archive
0: of memory. I know it's not just plants that you use for your dyes. What else do you make color and dyes from?
1: Um, Insects. I use like, I mean, not a whole lot, but I use cochineal like a bit. And that's made from insects that are on paddle cactuses. And also whack, which makes a beautiful purple. It's a resin from a beetle and minerals like rocks. You can get a sense of what the color will be if you get the rock wet. Cause you know, sometimes like when rocks are dry it'll have that like kind of chalky sort of thing on it. But then when you get it wet, you're like, whoa, that's green. That's like a brilliant green. And you can find certain areas that have high iron content. You can find like really nice ochres, like yellow. You can find even these like sea blue, beautiful grays, and wonderful browns, and all sorts of stuff. I was working with with indigo from South Carolina. Mm-hmm. It was the indigo that I used in in Gordon when I was dying this linen, and so South Carolina had a um, an indigo trade during slavery. Being able to to work with that particular indigo had this like very overwhelming experience in the pot of just getting inundated with the the ancestors, with the spirits, and I don't know who is there specifically, I have no earthly clue who is there specifically, but it just infused me, so I come back to that experience a lot, especially when I'm doing dye work.
0: beyond your own practice you have made space for other artists to thrive tell us a little bit more about the art department that you had running in philly how did that come about who
1: was with you what work did you set out to do through it i think it was probably around 2012 Mm -hmm. i was living in new york and just kind of was eager for a change and was looking to philly and i was coming down here a lot and at the time, and I was just like, I, I really like it. Let's see what happens. Yeah, kind of just thinking about like the longstanding future and my relationship with the arts as a maker was not very good at that point. I wasn't making work at all, mm-hmm. but I still wanted to be engaged with the community. So yeah. I bought a place on the corner of Berks and Tulip and started the art department with Kit. <laughs> the art department was kind of a long-standing idea that Kit and I had been talking about since we were in high school or actually i mean i've been thinking about running an art center since i was like 13 and we she and i you know we came up together and we're thinking about what you know we were transitioning young artists that were trying to like find our way in the industry Mm -hmm. and it was just really hard it was hard to muster the confidence to like walk to a gallery and put out your most vulnerable work and have it judged harshly so we wanted to to create a space where folks could kind of gather and be a little bit of a softer landing. Mm-hmm. What we got into and what I got into was like kind of radical hospitality. Like I loved being able to host people in the space mm-hmm. and to share share with them and to feed and nurture them. That ran until November of 2020, really. Between the pandemic and then we had some issues with the building. So it just kind of became time to transition this project and all of these ideas that we had gotten over the course of, I think at that point, we have been doing it for like eight years. We had a few years, a long run, of just having, constantly having, you know, shows and performances and exhibitions in the space. And there's one we had a, um, right before, I think it was like in late January, early February of 2020, we had... Um, The Vinyl Tap 215, we had a Ladies Vinyl Tap uh, 215 gathering, and it was just, it was magical. It was great. It's like, you know, all these women DJs, like, getting together and spinning, which was just creating this, like, beautiful space and atmosphere. And it's, yeah, it was just so good. Oh, it was so good. We had such a great time. That was really fun. You speak about...
0: You being raised um, in a transracial family,
1: mm-hmm. uh, how do you reckon with it through your work? The the transracial identity, that was kind of always the, the beginning seed of my work. And I think a lot of that had to do with just trying to understand myself. And I guess if I'm really real about it, like I'm trying to figure out whose gaze is whose. Is this a white gaze? Is this my gaze? Is this like, what does this mean? I would say that like, it's moved forward from there and changed and shifted and matured, but it's hard not to come from that perspective when I'm making my work. Part of being a transracial adoptee and and kind of having your past ancestry be a bit blank. Mm -hmm. For me, there's a lot of like trying to understand, and to some degree, like manufacturing that history. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to sit within s- some types of like common history, common American mm-hmm. history, especially working in something like textiles, which is uh, tends to be so handed down not for everybody, it's definitely not everybody's story, but yeah. there is such a lineage tied to this work, and it's not something that I have in that way. So, I hold really closely to the stories of folks that look like me that have done this work. Emily smiles when she calls the names of the many Black
0: femme crafters who have formed part of a community since the beginning of her own journey.
1: When I started the art department with my friend Kit, she was in a school for knit design and just being around her and exposed to it and like just seeing her love of it kind of got me more engaged with it and then about three years into running the art department, another friend of mine, Jen Brown, asked to like host a bunch of women for this like just natural dye get together. And so that was the first time I was really exposed to natural dyeing and kind of just lit a spark in me and fell in love with it. Fannie Lou Hamer really informs a lot of the work I do, both as a thinker, as a textile artist, and also as an agricultural Well, well, I guess I got to carve myself an agriculturalist now. (laughs) She set up a a farming community. Mm -hmm. And just, like, was such an amazing person. (laughs) Such an amazing person. And then I also think about Betty Leacraft, who is an amazing Philadelphia-based textile artist. We came to each other at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Like we just started talking to each other. I think we were in the Mexico exhibition. She's taught me so much. She's been an amazing mentor and guide to me and I am, am so grateful. Oh. There's a really large community of textile workers and, and artists that are Black femme artists in Philly that have been really wonderful and taken me under the wing and, and taught me a lot. Going through my my life as a Black crafter We're just not represented in the wider community as Black crafters. Being able to really own and take space and say, hey, we have a history here. Like, literally we have a material built history on this land. These beautiful, ornate details, they were made by people that look like us too.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The dye work, these textiles are literally part of the survival. And up until recently, had not been really viewed as objects worth saving because we had them. Emily affirms how a creative community
0: contributes to our own beginnings, transformations, and joy. These communities span across multiple temporalities. They include those who consider our work worth saving today, as well as those who crafted and survived before and for us they exist in our futures too they build futures with us remember how emily called herself a folk futurist at the beginning of our conversation i needed to know what this entails what goes into being a folk futurist
1: i think like when we as a culture are conceiving of our future it's very like tech heavy But I also think a lot about like old technologies, kind of evergreen technologies, being a textile artist, you know, knitting, weaving, crochet, all of these things are kind of these like evergreen technologies. And as a folk artist, as a, you know, cultural preserver, and somebody that's interested in history, I think it's important to like preserve these things. So as a folk futurist, I am envisioning where the place for these kind of modes and, and modalities in the future, and especially in relationship to the black diaspora, and for BIPOC artists and, and makers and creatives, and you know, for BIPOC history in general, because textiles like really hold a lot of our stories.
0: As a folk futurist. What is one thing that you hope to create or see manifesting through you?
1: A ship. I want to build a ship. It's a project that's, that's working itself out with some folks. It's actually a lot building off of the work that Joanne Douglas and Grace Sanders Johnson and I did for CEE, um, Taking that class and, and these, some of these ideas and trying to think about where we're off to. You know, I put that out there, and it could be a physical, terrestrial, like a sea ship. It also very well could be a spaceship. Mm -hmm. I want to build a ship. I think we're heading out where the people fly. (laughs) want to build a ship.
0: (laughs) And so a ship is being built. Through the living technologies inherited from ancestors, and by people who dream collectively. Are you coming? Thank you for listening to Reckoning and Repair, the art that's touched Philadelphia. Reckoning and Repair is a center for experimental ethnography project engaged with the exhibit Rising Sun Artists in an Uncertain America. A collaboration between the African-American Museum in Philadelphia and the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts open from March 23rd to October 8th, 2023.